All right. The man, the human, and the God. The God that lived the perfect life, Jesus. Now, Jesus was a people person, and he lived for God to save the souls of this world, and he really showed what it meant to value life. And this is the man we're going to speak about this evening. I just want to welcome everyone here. That's a great evening. I'm really glad to be able to be here, and I'm privileged to be able to share this day and worship with you guys. Keith, what are you doing over here? It's, it's throwing me off. <laughs> uh, Matthew 1. Matthew 1 is where we're going to start. Matthew 1. It's not Christmas yet, so I want to say Merry Christmas to everyone and a Happy New Year. My prayer is that we put God first in our lives, starting now, and we keep Him on the forefront of our minds and our heart, and especially during this year, um, this time of the year especially, we have one man particularly on our mind, and that is Jesus, a man that changed the world and life as we know it by simple actions and thoughts. This is someone that, that we should be thinking about really all year round. He didn't make billions and become, you know, a philanthropist. He didn't invent technology or create political policies. It wasn't the New York Times number one bestseller or a great actor and created great movies. He lived for God, believing with every fiber of his being the power and principles of God. Principles that we should follow and that we should live by. If you think about it, we follow people all the time. We really do. There's thousands of courses online about how to get rich real quick. I mean, you've all heard them. For just a small price, you know, I can show you step by step how I can make millions through passive income and so on and so on. And yet we wake up every day hoping for the perfect day, analyzing our every action, trying to break bad habits, replace them with good habits. Jesus lived the perfect life. He didn't make mistakes or miscalculations or sin. He was perfect in his daily life. If there's anyone we should be following, it's Jesus. He was born to save us. He lived to save us. And he died to save us. We will never be able to save the souls of anyone the way Jesus did. But we can learn and we can follow our Savior and how he lived and the value he put into his relationships. And so let's dive in. Let's look at this man, starting with Matthew 1. And as you turn over there, Matthew 1, I want to look at a prophecy, Micah 5.2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I really encourage you to do a study here in the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. Those prophecies are amazing. It's as if Jesus is literally, you know, looking at future events happen in real time while inspiring, you know, Old Testament writers to write about him. It really is amazing. A study like that will strengthen your faith. I guarantee it. And we see God's hand at work from the very beginning and up till now as we read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus' birth is very important. You know, the birth of every child is very important to us. But Jesus' birth, it goes even further than that. Jesus' birth is significant because it marks the beginning of a life with a mission to save his people from their sins. Verse 21. His people. That's the question. Who are his people? Is it just the Jews? Is it everyone? Is it everyone of the world? Well, God created all people and he preserves life on this world for as long as he wants. It's not referring to everyone. And while Jesus was, in fact, you know, a descent from, Jew, uh, from Jewish descent, and it was believed that the Messiah was meant to save all the people of Israel, they are not all his people. We have to understand that he was for everyone. He really was. That is true. But not everyone was for Jesus. His people are the people that are for him. Jesus' people are the people that make up his kingdom. The people he was born for. People that chose to accept him as salvation to the world. And it was in this moment that we read that he was born for his people. Just like a king over a kingdom... You know, a kingdom has citizens. What's unique about Jesus as king is that he's not a dictator or emperor. It's not a dictatorship or an empire trying to conquer the whole world. But rather, it's a sanctuary for all people of the world. The difference is that his people are those that have already found sanctuary and dwell in his kingdom. And so the beauty of God's kingdom, of his people is it's for anyone who wants to be called his, citizens of God. And we read in Matthew 1 that this is a king being born, a king that will save his people. And that is very important. It's a very important birth because it marks the beginning of a reign that will last for all eternity, a reign that will bring peace and tranquility to all his people. And this is an encouragement to us. It should be a daily celebration. On the 24th, 25th, 26th, 27th, into the new year, year after year, every day. And it doesn't stop there. The moment he was born, he is with us. Our King and Savior is with us, as it says there in verse 23. And this is prophecy from Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel is reference to the name Jesus. Emmanuel meaning God with us. Not only was Jesus born to save his people, but he was born with the intention to be with us as his people. As Christians today, God is with us. He was with us when he was born in this world, and he was with us as he left. Our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ, is with us. We don't have to bend over backwards. We don't have to do crazy stuff. In order to be with him, we don't. As king, Jesus wasn't born in a palace where you would expect a king to be born. A palace where, you know, kings sit on their throne and 
Only a select few get to be in his presence. Instead, according to Luke 2, verse 6, Jesus was born in humility. It says, while they, that's Joseph and Mary, were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. This is not a usual birth of a king. Instead, it's a birth of a king that desires all people, rich or poor, young or old, male or female, to be citizens of his kingdom. You see, the proud, they live life really as an attraction, but they die lonely without any assurances. The humble, now they may live life you know, under, under the radar, but they leave this life with deep connections, having had fruitful relationships with God's people. Are we humble? Are we humble? Do we allow humility and our faith to create deep connections with God's people and to show others God's kingdom, a kingdom that is a light to the world, that is on the hilltop, and it it can't be missed? You see, humility allows us to become approachable. Jesus, being born in a manger, was a place of humility, It was a place where all could approach him, where the poor shepherd or the the rich wise men could come together and worship our one and only Savior, Jesus. Jesus, he continued to grow, and he continued to live humble, even when dealing with others. And as Jesus grew into a man, he began to expand his ministry and to fulfill God's purpose for him, the purpose that he was born for. And as king, he grew up not as we would expect you know, a king to grow up, he grew up as a carpenter, which again points to his humble roots. And we can spend really all day looking at every single, you know, story of Jesus and how he lived. And we're seeing that through the examples in our class, the examples of Jesus living and, and forgiving and, and loving others. All the teachers are really doing a great job too. But, but what we see in Jesus' life And the way he lived is that he lived to save us. He knew his goal, he knew his mission, and he knew his people. And his every action was a direct result to that conclusion, to save his people. Let's turn over to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verses 26 to 31. When we look at how Jesus dealt with people and how he talked to them, he really showed them value. Even further than that, you can tell that he really tried to express to them how valuable they are to him. And in Matthew 10, 26, Jesus says this to his disciples. Have no fear of them, them being those who persecute us. For nothing is covered that that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall on the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. When you look at a piece of artwork... You know, that piece of artwork is not valuable to everyone. Before that artwork has value, you know, it has to actually move someone to pay a price that they're willing to sacrifice for it. But until then, it has no value except to the artist that 
has put in the time and the effort to create that, that piece of artwork, right? Well, we are that artwork of God's. Many people in this world do not value life, the pieces of God's artwork, if you will, and the life that he has given us. Instead, we witness many people just trample over others and ignore others' needs. They may even put physical you know, things and ideas and policies or even their own really self-reputation over the life of another. But Jesus, he didn't see it that way. Coming from humble backgrounds, and more importantly, trusting in God and his purpose, Jesus, he had nothing to lose. If we have our faith and it's planted firmly in him, we should have nothing to lose. It says there in verse 28, we should not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Our superpower on this earth is the value we have in our salvation and the confidence it gives us in everything we do. We can go in the most dangerous situation. We can weather any storm knowing God values us enough to protect our souls for eternity. So what we need to be doing, rather, we should fear him who can destroy both soul and body. There in verse 28. To the extent of this in the context, I should say, of this chapter, Jesus is talking to disciples, right? Are we disciples of Christ? Disciples that fear only God? Jesus saw God's artwork, human beings, as valuable. It says there in verse 31, Therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus was willing to pay more than just a, a few sparrows for us. Jesus was willing to sacrifice the largest payment anyone could make because of his purity and his perfect life that he lived. Jesus' payment is unmatched by any flawed human. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we value in this life? What do we hold dear? Is it our, is it our children, our, our spouse, our brethren, our car, our house? A fox lives in a box. <laughs> what is it? Is it our own life? What we value tells everyone else what's important to us. Do we value our souls and the souls of others over our own physical bodies? Because we should. The people who put Christ to death, they didn't value life or the life of others. They were only thinking of themselves. Often we can take life for granted. We really can't. We, especially when we get caught up in our daily lives and we perform all those habits that seem to be done on autopilot. And it's not until we come really face-to-face -face with death or maybe a passing of a loved one do we really understand and value that life and the life that that, or the life that, that it had on, the impact it had on other lives, I should say. It's important. We have impact on others. And sadly, many of us had to reflect on that this year. And when this happens, we can further appreciate and understand the value of life and this blessing God has given us. We get to worship a God who values life and values his creation. A God that sent the most valuable life there is for us. Jesus. And he gave it all for us. And I want to look at that even further this evening. We're going to do some flipping. I want to start in Mark 14. Mark 14, verses 43 through 46. When we go through these passages, I want to look at how Jesus is actually handled. Those people that are handling Jesus, look at how they value life. And look at how they value God. Mark 14, 
43-46. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Now in verse 44, Judas orders Jesus to be placed under guard, which basically means, you know, arrest him and do it safely, which is ironic because they're coming with swords and clubs. I don't know about you, but usually that's an indicator. It's not going to be peaceful. It's just not. And then they proceed to arrest him. Notice also in verse 48, Jesus expects this. You have come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. And so they arrest an innocent man. And if we turn to John 18, turn over to John 18. They take Jesus to Annas first. Now Annas is the father-in-law to Caiaphas, and, and Caiaphas is that year's chief priest. And Annas begins to question him in verse 19. John 18, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And it sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so they send him then to Caiaphas. And look in Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 63 through 65. Luke 22, verses 63 through 65. He's already been treated really well. And what we see here in Luke 22 is kind of what we see in America, right? We see... We see due process. The men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. We don't. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Then after they questioned him and basically beat him to confession, if you will, if you want to call it that, they send him to the governor of Israel at that time. That's Pontius Pilate. And it amazes me how Jesus is awake, how he's still on his feet. Imagine you have to stand there and have people punch you as hard as they can in the face. And yet he has a pretty peaceful talk with Pilate. And Jesus at this point is already beaten to a point, uh, a pulp, excuse me, and Pilate sends Jesus to King Herod. Now King Herod is under Pilate and he has a little control over Israel but he doesn't have the same authority over as, as, Her- as, a, as Pilate does. And so King Herod and his soldiers, what do they do? They make fun of Jesus, and they treat him as a spectacle to find amusement, and not as the Son of God. When we read this in Luke 23, verse 11, saying, Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothes, he sent him back to Pilate. Pilate, perhaps with you know, a small amount of decency and lesser injustice, tries to set him free, saying in Luke 23, verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him. You'll notice Pilate holds little value in, in life. 
And so do the religious leaders when Pilate gives them the choice to either choose an innocent man to set free or an actual murderer, Barabbas, and they choose Barabbas, not Jesus. They go through all this trouble sending Jesus up and down the chain of command just to execute an innocent man that they know, they know is really innocent. And while Barabbas, an actual murderer, is sitting in jail, I don't know about you, but maybe their priorities are off a little bit. They don't really value God and the blessing of life that he's given except their own. They had to break 18 of their own laws just to execute Jesus. That's how, that's how much intent they had in crucifying him. And then they yell, crucify, crucify him in Luke 23, 21. And Pilate gives in and orders Jesus to be executed. So after he's been beaten and beaten and beaten some more and spit on and mocked, Jesus is flogged. And you'd think if it was any other man, if it was any other man, he'd be dead. I was watching the, the bonus features of a film about Jesus' crucifixion, because that's the type of person I am. And, uh, and there was these so, you know, people playing these soldiers, and they were pretending to flog, you know, the actor playing Jesus as they're trying to get this shot. And one of the soldiers misses and accidentally hits the actor playing Jesus on the back. And the actor just faints, totally passes out. And you think, well, yeah, that's an actor, George. What'd you expect? But, but that was one hit. One hit. And Jesus is actually being hit several times on the back over and over and over again with whips that have bone or jarred, jarred metal at the ends. And you'd think it would stop there, but it gets worse. Look at Mark 15. Mark 15, 16 through 20. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. It's all the troops there. And they, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. And they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And then they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple, ro- of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And by crucify, in this case for Jesus, he had to carry the cross, the thing that he was going to hang from on his back that's already been flogged a mile to the place that he's going to be executed. I don't know if you've ever seen a boxer after just a few you know, rounds in the ring. Their face doesn't look the same, and he's being beat all night and now day. There is a man named Simon that helps you know, Jesus carry the cross, but after a mile hike, with all of that, he has nails driven through his hands and his feet. And then in John 19, John 19, verse 18, we get this picture. John 19, verse 18, they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Drop down to verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, that's Psalm 69, I thirst, a jar full of sour wine, stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. 
Now we go through all of that to show that at this time, Jesus was a human life, and look how they valued his life. At this moment, Jesus was God, and look how they valued God with no respect, and they did their worst. Jesus, he, he was born for the people in this crowd that watched him go through all of this. He was born for you and me. Jesus, he lived to save all these people, you and me. Jesus, he died for all these people, for you and me. Jesus was born humble. He lived humble. He died humble. A king of humility that cherished his creation when his creation spit in his face. Jesus, he chose God. He chose God in how he lived and died. And we see that throughout the entire Gospels. But he also chose people. Do we choose God? And then do we also choose people? He saw the value of people when others didn't give a second glance at the value of human life. Children, of, you know, that means all children, orphans or non-orphans, women and men, rich and poor, all races, all classes, all humans, all souls. He saw value in them. But that death didn't stop our great God and his awesome power. Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death, besting man's power, Satan's schemes. We have to ask ourselves now, what do we value? Do we value life? Do you value your life and the life of others the way Jesus valued life? Do you value your soul and the, and the soul of others the way Jesus valued souls? Our last passage as we close, Mark 16. Mark 16, verses 14 through 20. Starting in verse 14 of, of Mark 16, it says, Afterwards he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of hearts because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And then also in Luke 24, 52 for 53, in addition it says, and I love this, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. As citizens of God's kingdom, are we doing as God commanded us to proclaim you know, the, the gospel to the whole creation? that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved? And are we doing it joyfully, knowing that we have a great and gracious and loving king? And for those not yet you know, a part of God's kingdom, now is your choice to be a part of his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, doing as Jesus has said, being baptized for the salvation of your souls. You care about your soul? 
you do, and you understand what it's like to be baptized, come forward while we stand and we sing.